0: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Special guest with me today is my co-host for The Darkened Hour, Richard Cox. Richard, hey, this is a new one. Thanks for joining me.
1: Good evening, Adam. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, hey, Rich. well, Richard Cox is obviously my co-host for The Darkened Hour. He has his own website, which deals with spirituality, conspiracy theories, anarchism, and geopolitics. He has also authored his first book entitled Contemplating Conspiracy, Excursions into Undiluted Madness, to which the basis of the interview is surrounding on. And why don't we open up with the first question, Richard? Um, I read the book, it's 80 pages long. I'm going to link that at the bottom of the description uh, in the uh, podcast. Um, but. In the very first chapter, you mentioned that you were not experienced with the nature of conspiracy theories initially. Um, was your skeptical nature toward conspiracy theorists based on your misunderstanding of them, or a misunderstanding of just how nefarious certain elements of government, or was it a combination of both?
1: Well, mostly I was young, okay, and you grew up in a system and you believe what the system has to say. And for me, I think a big part of it was I became increasingly disenfranchised with the educational system as i got older i went into it wide-eyed and think it's going to be some wonderful experience it's all about learning and you know we're, we're this is the descendancy of plato's academy kind of thinking and then realizing it wasn't that at all you know and this increasing cynicism about what we were doing there and how it really was a whole box ticking exercise and around that time George W Bush I'm 18 when George W Bush gets elected President and that's one of many things that just seemed struck me as really odd. That in a nation of 300 million people, what are the chances that the son of the guy who did the job, but one before would be would would get it, you know that that just seems. Statistically unlikely unless the bushes are some sort of politically genius family and they're just a cut above the average American and well that didn't seem to be the case, so my my general faith in the world broke down at the same time you mentioned the, the podcast deals with spirituality and I was opening up to um sort of I went through a very standard kind of thing of being raised inside a, a Christian um culture really inculturated into Christianity and sent to Sunday school and then rejecting that as a bunch of fairy tales around the age of 11 or so and embracing a more kind of scientific materialist worldview and then finding that to be very empty of meaning and then moving into an embrace when I, when I discovered it of, of more kind of Eastern philosophy, Eastern spirituality, which is just like everything I've just said in the last two minutes is like a thousand million people say that around the world. It's a very standard journey people go on. And that, that also had this jolting effect of like, Oh, the world's really different to the way we think it is in a positive way. In some ways it's much better. You know, is there a lot of this spiritual stuff has value and merit. It's not just uh flim flam fantasies uh, necessarily. And then equally, um discovering that the world is much deeper and darker too in some ways. And that that was my exposure to conspiracy was picking up by David Icke then when I was 18. And um I I suppose my only reticence about conspiracy theories, I assumed they weren't true. Like the ones I'd heard would be Kennedy and the moon landing and that was kind of it then. People didn't talk about conspiracy theory in the nineties, I don't think as much at all as now. And I just thought if that if some nefarious cabal shot Kennedy then that the U.S. government would come screeching to a halt. You couldn't have another election again. So that was all sorted out, and the media would be all over it. So clearly, this is just some people with fertile imaginations, isn't it? And and that that was it. That's all I thought about it. And then being plunged into that world and finding out that a lot of these claims had merit. You know, like the CIA does traffic drugs and that kind of thing. And we do live in imperial constructs. So that that's what really got me wrestling then, because obviously you're on a spectrum then, which is like from the normy kind of side of things to the very extreme fringe kind of side of things. And I, I'm questioning then, where am I going to end up on this spectrum? What, what is truth here? Can I discern it? I probably had probably enough there for you, your question, Alex. so I'll, I'll turn it back over.
0: Yeah, no, um, I, you know, I'm interested in this because uh, in, during my young adult years, um, I was imbued with human constructs. Uh, when I talk about human constructs, I'm talking about like politics, racism, religion, all the, uh, the human applications, the catchisms, if you will. Um, did you have any, uh, um, human influences that made you perceive the reality before you in a, in a different light back then than as as opposed to now?
1: Not on the political level, really. No, it was more that I found out the world wasn't as it was supposed to be. And then I think it was literally just that David Icke's book was in the spirituality section of the bookshop. And I was looking there. And it's called The Biggest Secret, right? That was his new ish book at the time. Oh, what's the biggest secret? Is there something else I don't know about the world? And to me, it was kind of a mental experiment because I just on an an A level, like a, a leaving school certificate in history, and we were sat there being given these documents that were apparently from the 17th century. And I'm thinking, like, you know, how do we know this happened, right? And I'm sure we do, right? I'm sure the people at universities have very good reason, but we don't know, like in this class, we're just handed these documents and told, yeah, this is what happened. So what if you carry on up and like you do an undergraduate degree and then they don't know and so on. So to me, it was an int- conspiracy theory came across as an interesting intellectual proposition immediately, like a, a kind of like pluralism, although well, I wouldn't have had the language for it at the time. Say, So well, what is an alternative worldview to comparative? Like, can you construct an alternative theory of history, and I think I've I've always had an innate interest in iconoclastic figures that say, "Oh, look, we could look at this whole thing completely different." Whether it's in, um, whether it's in history or science or anything, the art, like, because how can somebody construct a an ideology that's different from the mainstream and believe in that, given all the pressure that they're going to be under to conform? I think that's always interesting to me. So that that was really how it started, and then. Um just finding the level of truth contained within it sort of pulled me in further, okay, this really has to be taken seriously.
0: You, you open up the book with a quote from um, uh, Paul Firebend, yeah, uh, in which you quoted, Even our most basic assumptions, our most solid beliefs, and our most conclusive arguments can be changed, improved, or diffused or shown to be irrelevant. By a comparison with what at first looks like undiluted madness. Yes, is that something that resonated with you at the time, or more so now, after uh, writing this book?
1: Well, no. For I, I actually started studying Firearm about fifteen years ago, um, and it didn't resonate with me so much up until that point. Okay, because like a lot of people, either thought that the way you understand the world is you get the right idea and you just go down that one track, and you don't consider flim-flammy ideas off to the side okay but the undiluted madness thing i I ultimately made it the the subtitle um so on one level looking at the title you might think oh okay conspiracy theories are undiluted madness and the book is about engaging with them and that's not quite what i meant that's a kind of superficial and ultimately untrue level the undiluted madness is other people's opinions that are different from your own other people's worldviews like when you don't stand and look on the landscape from the same position as another person, what they say appears as undiluted madness because they're looking in a different direction. So the excursion into undiluted madness is an invitation to join the other person in their perspective of the world. And that can be um, an excursion for the, the normie to say, OK, well, why do these people think the towers are brought down by explosives? Why, why do the people ha- get involved in this Q-an- QAnon stuff or, or whatever it is? And to turn and see, OK, I, I can see how a person... With a similar starting point to me, you could go on a different journey and rationally end up there, and equally for the conspiracy theorists to not necessarily reject you know all mainstream opinion and all the work of uh, journalists who are a little more uh, centric in their in their views it's an invitation for us all to embrace that which we are not
0: yeah uh, I, I, you know in the, throughout the book you, you know you took great care to mention your introduction into David Icke. Mm. And how his views toward materialism and conspiracy influenced you, um, and to, then too much later, nine eleven happened, which led you to question yeah. the narrative. But how how deeply rooted were you in the nature of conspiracy as opposed to conventional uh, mainstream ideas? Or were you in a midst of conflict on believing through empiricism and faith?
1: Um, for me, it was all conflict really at that point because I could. Just taking, for example, fluoride, right? So we, we talked about fluoride in the biology class at school, and you were presented with that there are two sides to that argument. There's people who want fluoride in the water supply because it's good for your teeth, and then there's people that don't because they consider it some sort of civil liberties issue. But it was never suggested, never suggested that the people that don't might actually think it's toxic beyond a certain dose. Okay? So straight away, I could see there was a lie told, in a lie of admission told in the educational system. Okay, and David Icke saying, "Yeah, fluoride's toxic." Now I don't know if it's toxic initially at that point. I don't really have an opinion on it, but I know I've been lied to, and I know that. Oh, okay. People aren't just opposed to this because of some abstract issue of civil rights. Okay, um, so for me, I just didn't know. But what, what as I stepped into it, some of the outlandish claims they seem to have merit. Okay, and this isn't. This isn't 2020 this is 2001 where you can't just go on the internet and easily check these things i wouldn't have had the resources to anyway and for me there was a prolonged period of floundering about really and not knowing um what was crazy and what wasn't because david ike shape-shifting reptilians might be kind of on the crazy fringe but to me the idea that the cia trafficked drugs is on the crazy fringe i mean that that was the most radical and ludicrous thing at all but it was also one of the things that i could even at that time, like verify, okay, yeah, they do have quite a close relationship to, and that's like a totally different idea of how like the good guys and the bad guys were positioned. So for me, there was a long period of floundering. I ultimately stepped back from it for a while and then um, looked more at philosophy. And then when I came back in, I took more of a geopolitical angle to try and get like, okay, what can be firmly established? What can we say absent speculation? And then have that as a foundation to speculate should we want to.
0: Uh, I just want to follow up on that, if I may. uh, I think you mentioned previously, it could uh, follow up on this, that conspiracy theories were much more abundant in the past than they are now with the advent of the internet. Would that be a true statement or?
1: No, I think the other way around, Adam. Conspiracy theories are much more abundant now than in the past. I I would think so. It's just, I mean, I I was a kid in the 90s, right? But I just, we never encountered them, right? It just seems to be, Very much. I mean, 9-11 obviously massively increased the the talk around them. And I think the possibility to consume information through documentaries, because it's a more uh, it's it's easier medium than reading big, thick books sometimes. Um, But it just it seems to me that the Internet has created really proliferation. So probably all sorts of worldviews are more prominent now than in the past. And there has been a certain fracturing and people can go down Uh, all sorts of different avenues and find communities to do that with, whereas in the past, it would have been much harder to find anyone. I mean, if you're into conspiracy, if I'd been into conspiracies in the 90s, I could probably find some random guy down the pub sometimes to chat to, but that would have been it, you know, I'd have had to have travelled hundreds of miles to a conference to, and indeed, in the early days, I went to things like the Nexus conference, right? And Nexus New Times magazine from Australia. And that would be like my one conversation about conspiracy theory for months, or maybe to the next year's conference it's not like you can pop on the internet and talk to people.
0: Well, I mean, so stick on the 9-11 theory, because in chapter three, you illuminate just how important World Trade Center Tower number seven is to conspiracy theorists in the 9-11 truth movement. And I I do remember our first interview with David Chandler regarding Mm. how he thinks the building came down by pre-planted explosives rather than the purported narrative of the natural collapses from fire. Was the conspiracy surrounding World Trade Center 7 influenced by the implication that it came down through unnatural means rather than an unbiased investigation?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't actually remember people talking about that a lot in the early days of the truth movement. I I think the the collapse of the building things came just a little bit later. I could be wrong about that. Like, that could be just my memory, but it seemed to be, it was like Richard Gage in 2006 that got that ball rolling in a more substantial way. Um, and I suppose it is a very visual thing, right? So you almost do need YouTube to really push that conspiracy out there because it is, it's is—it's the site of it. And I think in that, um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, but what I found interesting was meeting people for whom that video had catapulted them into a different world. It was like an initiation moment where with the collapse of building seven came the collapse of their worldview. and i've met people I, I gave an example of one chap in the book i've met more than one who described that process and then having to build a new tower um in its place and so that was my uh, with, with a whole different worldview arising out of that i'm sure there'll be elements i'd agree with elements i disagree with in that um but it's just it's it fascinated me how watching this event and interpreting it a certain way catapults someone into an entirely different reality.
0: It, it just seems that there are two competing narratives at play here, Richard, and that is, one is the account from mainstream media, which is the extension of the state, if you will, and those of mm. the more fringe elements of conspiracy theorists. My question to you is, is there more, is there some truth to both, or somewhere in the middle?
1: well probably not the middle right but um I think I mean it's very hard to say what I, I try to stay away from saying what truth is in the book right because right, right. to me the world is a very unknown noble thing and we can we can pick up little facets of it and gain insight into one area but then even there even you know the thing you could write your great thesis on if you look at it another way or maybe you're completely wrong and I'm sure you'd acknowledge Adam like for all your studies of 9-11 I think you'd be surprised if you know, if you could lift up the veil and see it as it actually was, you'd probably reckon you'd be shocked, right, by what you'd find. You'd go, oh, I never imagined that and then this, and it was all for this reason. You know, you'd probably be quite surprised. I try and stay away from truth claims um, in the book. What I suggest is, with the world being unknowable, we therefore benefit from adopting different perspectives upon it. So it could be that a conspiratorial vision where you have this deep state architecture running even over hundreds of years looking at it that way it might not be true but it might open you up to seeing things that a less conspiratorial vision doesn't and then it could be also that stepping out of that and seeing no, hang on a minute it's also the case that events in history are very much a a product of randomness too. And just whoever happens to be occupying positions of political power at the time and their personalities and what the weather was doing and and this, this kind of like spectrum between an extremely ordered account of history and an extremely random account. I would say both of those forces must be at play. Um, And to be really healthy and balanced, it would be good to step between the two of them and look at various different lenses.
0: Let me ask you a, a, a tough question, and uh, what are we better, well, this is a hypothetical, but it's, uh, you know, I'll just base on your opinion. Is it better off knowing something or not knowing something?
1: Well, that's very philosophical, Adam. That, that Isn't is a difficult it? question. I mean, I would say we, we quest to know things, okay? Now, like, could be things that we know that make us uncomfortable like if i'd never gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole or the geopolitical rabbit hole my life would be different right and arguably better in some ways um but it's interesting isn't it because it's not that i would i would want that and as i sit here now I, i quest for more truth and to know more so there seems to be some innate good in. Knowing and expanding knowing, even if it would be hard to justify that on paper in terms of what worldly gain did I acquire from this. You know? Right.
0: The, like but it person... seems, seems
1: to be a good in and of itself, would you say? I mean,
0: right. Because you know, this is a question I had from a dear friend of mine, Nicole, who I share like a, a deep common bond when I talk about uh the nature of philosophy and geopolitics. And I asked her this question once because she's a, a mother. And I said, would you rather live in a path like in a a shield of ignorance in your past because we were happier younger as opposed to getting older and knowing more things which are far more depressing in the reality of it in the face of it and to my surprise she said that she would you know rather be happy and ignorant and then changed her mind later on when i asked that question months later and said no she would rather know and try to make the future a better place. And I said, now that's, you know, I, I can understand why she mm. said that.
1: So, right. I mean, maybe, maybe the obvious answer is no, no, I'd, I'd rather be happy and ignorant. And then something deeper in the soul calls out, right? No, no, actually, no, I, I need to know reality as it is. There's right. something, And I have multiple friends who some of them are self-aware enough to know this about themselves that they don't want to know beyond a certain point about governments which are ostensibly protective entities i mean they're they're the people you're going to if you lose your job and you needed an unemployment check or if you um if you get sick in this country or in britain mostly europe you're going to a government hospital okay so government takes on the, you know when you're a little kid and you graze your knee and go to your mom when you grow up you graze your knee and worse but you go to the state okay and it's not necessarily a comforting thought to think that they're this big evil okay Um, and maybe okay what they do outside the house that's one thing what they do in Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen well okay that's it but you want to think that they really love you in some way if they're going to be providing your welfare and your health care so I can understand that and and actually uh, various people have said that to me they've actually often had children right and they thought okay that's a that's a level of instability I don't need and one of the things I wanted to explore in the book is like I think that's wise for a couple of reasons in some ways, because when reality shatters and this is like, I think it's chapter seven. I talk about this, Adam, right? That um, it's not easy to shatter your reality because it's when you start falling and falling. Where do you stop? Maybe you don't until your feet land firmly upon the flat earth. Right. You can just go down a conspiracy rabbit hole and it's very hard to piece reality back together again. And you don't necessarily want to do that when you've got a couple of kids to look after and a job to maintain and something of a social life to occasionally turn up to. And um, I also know people in more public positions, right, where or they have to run groups or um, coach people in some manner or support people, right, or the adults. And I notice sometimes they've stayed away from a more conspiratorial vision, even when it's put to them. And I do observe that well gee if they adopted this it would change the nature of what they do and a lot of people who they are in that supportive role for wouldn't feel comfortable if it was that plus conspiracy theory okay so i do wonder if like there's a a psychological mechanism so because i mean i think we've both seen i was a little bit more this is more of a newer perspective for me and and something that prompted a a fair bit of the book was seeing up close and personal the destructive not actually that personal but up, up close at a distance up close at a distance, people I would interact with but not close to me, um, go through a kind of destructive phase of getting into conspiracy theory where it can almost go into a kind of psychosis, you know? And that was a new one for me. Mostly I was would be of the, of the mindset of people need to like red pill more, right? They need to shatter their reality more and uh, expand themselves. But then seeing, and even people I would have a lot of ideological disagreement with, like Mick West, okay? uh the what does he do the uh tales from the rabbit hole is his book and i think down the, yeah with book and podcast um and I've, i write about him in the last chapter because i had to come to respect that okay one positive function he plays and i think there are various negative functions but one positive is he does pull people back from that edge right and people who are perhaps losing their minds or have family members losing their minds staring into the abyss and um, you need that kind of compassionate figure to to pull back and say just calm it down a bit uh, you know the world yeah. may not be as great as you think.
0: Sure. I, w- I want to talk about Mick West later. I have a question based yeah, on okay. that. Yeah. yeah. But going back to the book, you write about the blurring lines of reality and imagination. And the um, the example you give is from Philip K. Dick, mm. who believed he lived in an alternate version of reality. While you also point out that it very well could be his imagination was so powerful, it was overwhelming his own rationale. Mm. And so my question is how much of a difference is there between the metaphorical and the literal when it comes to the human mind?
1: Well, so I think if there's an overarching point to the book and this, well, I suppose there's several, but one would be to recommend to people and maybe people, not exclusively, but maybe slightly more people in spiritual communities to take conspiracies or conspiracy theories, theorists, seriously, if not literally, because what I saw arising with um, Covid particularly, okay, and having been in spiritual communities myself or one in particular, um, I've always known there was a divide there between people who are really conspiratorial and people who are really aren't, okay, Uh, and that fissure just massively expanded during Covid where there was more kind of hostility and I'd see people um, wanting to distance themselves from the conspiracy theorists in their midst and write quite dismissive and I think, kind of low quality dismissals okay and yeah so what I was interested to examine then with with um what you're putting there um, I was looking at the way when we push the metaphorical out of something it comes back in okay so we um what was I saying yeah Philip so Philip K Dick was um a writer he did, he most famously did Total Recall and uh, The Man in High Castle which was serialized on Amazon and I was was exploring with that, the the, the similarity and distinction with um, him and David Icke, right? So why we think David Icke is crazy. So David Icke um, writes this book on reptilians, and they're literal. They're in the world. They're walking around the White House. And he takes the metaphorical world, the symbolic world, and he takes the physical world, and he just sticks them together in a way that's very uncomfortable for us. Okay, well, Philip K. Dick uh, sort of does that. Um, because he will reveal that he believes that his books were based on an actual reality, and a reality he has a memory of, but it's a reality that's a little bit distinct. It's unlike a different timeline, if you like, to this reality. Um, so that it's a very different reading experience because you can put him safely in the category of fiction. So what I was interested in, even though he's, he's kind of not, what I was interested in is what is the effect of blurring that line when we when we merge the mythic and the, and the physical? Okay, and to me um it seems like you can't just say it's bad okay obviously it could be bad if you introduce all sorts of um kind of crazy notions uh, into your attempt to understand the world into your politics right but mythology obviously plays a role and literalism taking mythology literally take, plays a role so philip k dick commented that he only kind of remembered that what he was writing from was memory after the publication of the book and he was aware that, look, if I'd have come out and said all this stuff beforehand, that would have like really changed the way people read it. And for one thing, I think it would have made it more scary. Right. If you thought like the events of the man in the high castle, like Nazis taking over America, it's like if you put that thought into say hey, this, this really happened, you know, and this, this could have happened in an alternative timeline. It did happen. It makes it a bit more Ooh, chilling. Um, whereas like David Ike, he does blow that line. He says you know, the, the reptilians are real, they're, 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 they're real entities and that then you can't leave it safely in the world of fiction the his work affects you if you take that in and take it in, on any way seriously in a way that has this more chilling effect and in that sense i think it prompts greater action from a smaller number of people okay so if you think about like um i was very interested in the uh, mythos of christianity the idea of jesus principally being a kind of spiritual initiation myth that got taken literally and um a friend of mine, Tim Freakoy, I've interviewed on this topic, he wrote some books on it. And um, he thinks that's um, you know, a really bad thing that happened, that it got taken literally. And I He's echoing Joseph Campbell there in saying like a, a myth dies. It loses all its spiritual um, potential uh, when it gets taken as as history. OK, and I wanted to put another side to that and say, well, clearly not. Right. Because Christianity has two billion adherents and it's been around for 2000 years. So. Where's the problem here, right? It's like, it's obviously there's something very powerful in taking a miss literally. And I'm not saying, and therefore we should do this, but we should be aware of that. We should be aware that David Icke, um, for all his reptilians, um, even if they're not, even if he's not describing history accurately, um, he's doing something. It's having an effect on the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that have come into that, um, come into contact with his work in a way that a John Pilger book wouldn't and in a way that David Icke's work wouldn't if he put this is a work of fiction at the front and it had that effect on me it it shattered my reality right so that's you you need something big and powerful and kind of crazy to do that and I think Adam if you talk to a lot of people who like yourself maybe are very cynical about conspiracy theory and they're doing what they attempt to be very erudite in their geopolitical research a lot of them if you ask how did you get into this then a lot of them have a crazy story right a lot of them like think that uh they got into it through um judy woods energy. i think it's your one isn't it judy woods energy beams they saw that crazy idea and went, what yeah. is this about and then at some later point they look back with a little bit of embarrassment on that they don't necessarily want to say oh yeah i, I got into it because you know i thought the reptiles were real also you know sure. but it's often like um initiations are often kind of crazy and that goes to spirituality too i notice you you speak to people in spiritual groups and um they can be doing something you know quite serious quite arduous like zazen meditation you've got to sit with a straight back for an hour a day in the morning well however long a day and um, you know it's all about consciousness and they read kind of erudite papers on the the materialism idealism debate but how did you get into this then it's like it's often something involving like they were talking to the fairies at the bottom of the garden and they don't really want to say that now but it's often like a crazy thing so i thought, oh that's an interesting parallel so that that was my point really we have to be aware of the, the mythic dimension is powerful in the human psyche and it comes into geopolitics. And if you don't acknowledge that, you end up just going to crazy town because if, if you exclude it, it, it ends up you know, coming in in a way that's maybe not ideal. So that, that that's what it's going for there.
0: Sure. Well, you just answered my next question, by the oh, way, right. uh, because <laughs> I was just going to talk about the, um, because it was my interest uh, initially before Nilem was monotheism specifically. And there was a point, where you raised a book about how the Abrahamic faiths have lost the essence of spirituality by way of literal interpretation, and I was going to ask for your uh, a, a fuller explanation of it.
1: But- well, yeah, I'll, I'll just say on that, I Adam. Mean, that's going to like, I'm I'm sort of cautious in the way I say that because I recognise that a lot of people will go, no, they haven't. I'm a, a Christian, a, a mm-hmm. Jew, a, a Muslim, and I think they're fall to the brim and overflowing of spirituality. and I'm not really wanting to start that argument, but what I am saying is, look, there is a perspective where, like, and I think it's an entirely valid one, where you can say that um, the, the Jesus story has all these powerful, mythical, symbolical themes to it, and then when you make a, a story about a man in history, that changes the nature of it, loses that, and that's a very common trope inside uh, spiritual groups okay and inside mythologists like joseph campbell and i'm just observing the opposite of that that had jesus remained a myth we'd probably never have heard of him because it would have been some obscure cult. that you know it's the fact that he unlike a lot of the other gods he entered history in a profound way and that gives it a sense of reality that people if you ever notice how how important it is to um christians a lot of them that jesus was historical and you think like Why would that be right? Because, like, people, when they discover that Sesame Street isn't real, they don't think mathematics is rubbish. Because, like, oh, but I saw the number nine on TV, so you're telling me that's not the number nine? Well, no, because, like, look, maths exist in some sort of abstract realm, okay? And it's like more powerful and more real than the physical stuff we're touching in some ways, if you look at it that way. So, to say it's like not. Historical, or or the, the number nine isn't really a character that appears on Sesame Street. It doesn't mean math isn't real. And in the same way, to say that like um the Jesus uh, Jesus wasn't if he wasn't, it wasn't an historical character. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't quote unquote real in some sense. Okay, but we very much equate reality with the stuff you can touch with history, and that takes on a pa- sorry, just a noise in the background. Uh, that takes on a power then okay like um and that's what i'm saying about david ike that in in making the reptilians real his work takes on all this power that it wouldn't otherwise have
0: that chapter really was when you talked about that it resonated with me because i i came from that background and just to give you a short you know summary about where i came from in those early years in 2003 and four was that i was an atheist but then i i gravitated toward the what what's there? they were labeled the new age atheists, like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, Mm. Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins. And so I became a fervent anti-theist. And I became very abusive toward people of all faiths, because I generalized them as being all the same. Uh, You know, they're all crazy thinking, believing different things. And I was led down this road for like three years. And then I realized that this worldview of mine was detrimental and I was wrong, flat out wrong, because there are different faiths and there are different beliefs and I had to understand them. And in doing so, it was actually an atheist who was actually biblically literate, who told me that, you know, your you're, you're, you're shtick is, you know, getting old, uh, you know, you're abusive and it's uh, not helpful to anybody. And I respected this individual. And I was like, what, what did I do wrong? So I self-reflected. And I remember getting off the internet for a year to, to self-reflect and say, why made it so wrong about this worldview that I had? And I realized, and it was a grudgingly realization, too, that Christopher Hitchens was wrong. And I really respected him. And not only was he wrong on the uh, religious sense and that I'm still an atheist. I, he, I don't think he's always wrong, but his generalizations and debates toward low-hanging fruit, you know, mm. the people who take the Bible literally, where he would never debate, a spiritualist, a real theologian, but it also led me to believe that his views on the real world, because he became a neocon after 9-11, were also wrong. So in the end, it changed me and changed my life for the better, because here I am. Now I had to really study about what I was railing against and what I believed. And so it changed me. It was like it changed everybody in the 9-11 community is skeptic community and truthers and debunkers. We all came from that fringe mentality that you outlined so perfectly in the book. And it, it really is, a, 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 I love the, 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 I'm glad you wrote the book because it's, it really resonates for a lot of people in the truth community, whatever it be 9-11 or anything else, because we've, even for skeptics, because we've all came from that essence, that fringe essence. You know, when I first came into 9-11, mm. I, you know, I knew who Judy Wood was. I, first film I, I ever saw was In Plain Sight by Dave Von Kleist and Lose Change. And I believed no planes hit the Pentagon. I believed, you know, there was no plane crash Shanksville. But because of that, I then looked at the other point of view because I didn't want to make the same mistakes as I did with my previous uh, thoughts on religion.
1: Mm. So in religion, you have this concept of an initiatory myth. Okay, mm-hmm. that's at least the. Some- people at the more esoteric end of the spectrum would see the more literal religion the kind of religion that hitchens and dawkins criticizes Mm -hmm. as oh yeah they they take they are making the same mistake as the fundamentalist religious types they're thinking that the initiatory myth is the entirety of it okay and what's interesting to me about that period because i kind of hated that whole new atheist period because i was into a kind of symbolist um interpretation understanding of religion so i my friend of mine gave me richard dawkins um book with the kind of here that'll sort you out kind of thing i said oh this guy is simplifying everything and he doesn't understand what he doesn't understand um but what's interesting about that period is there were all these predictions i remember like going back to the 80s uh john shelby sponge the 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 priest wrote a book um on christianity saying look this whole kind of very literal taking the Bible literally Christianity that's all going to fall away that's going to be around 20 30 years from now and it's going to be a more kind of secular Christianity based on more kind of humanitarian principles that survives completely wrong completely wrong what grew during the period was exactly the kind of religion that Dawkins and Hitchens railed against it was the extreme literal version and I think that speaks to the power of myth and the necessity of having myth in in our lives and I think that recently you've you've got figures like Jordan Peterson uh, talking about sort of re the intellectual landscape and as reasserted look there is an importance to myth whatever you make of it the underpinnings of it there is an importance to it um and that was in the book the the message to conspiracy um uh, sorry the message to people who do the kind of geopolitical analysis which they feel that conspiracy theory detracts from which I don't doubt it does right And I talk about how conspiracy theory is weaponized to protect the state okay to um whenever, like, Fox News or MSNBC wants to cover 9-11, they'll get someone on from the very extreme fringe. So they're using a conspiracy to say, oh, look, people who question the state's narrative, wackos, you know, uh, and it keeps everyone in the box. So, consp- like, I don't doubt they have a negative impact, but my my point is they're not going away, okay? Because if you, like, no, nobody's first book on 9-11 is Peter Dale Scott's The Road to 9-11, okay? Unless you're an extremely unusual person, okay, um, you're not... You're not reading uh, Kevin Fenton's "Disconnecting the Dots" as your first book, unless you're already like so involved in this world anyway that you know you're not really an outsider. You're just an outsider to one aspect of it. Um, you you're going to start with something that's a bit more big and flamboyant, and there's no point in railing against that. There's no point in like waving a fist in the air saying, "Oh, of all, only all these conspiracy people will go away. Everyone would, you know, read my 500 page." book with 10,000 footnotes. They wouldn't, they couldn't, you know? Um, so the question I leave then is, well, what do you do about that? Okay. You've, you've there's got to be some kind of, if you think that people should be moving to this more, what you consider a more erudite understanding, there's got to be some kind of conveyor belt to pick those people up and not just go in with a sledgehammer and start smashing their illusions. Cause look, we've seen it in religion. How effective is that? It, it just isn't. Okay. So there has to be some way to move people along that spectrum then. Um, and that's what we've got to work on, not like smashing these conspiracies, because they're, they're not going anywhere for, for a good while.
0: Yeah, because I think people tend to gravitate toward more of the imagination and mythology than they do with the reality. Uh, is, by the way, is George W. Bush a shape-shifting reptilian, or is delusion where reptilians could possibly exist only?
1: Is George Bush a shapeshifting reptilian? So that's a chapter chapter heading. That's, okay? right. that's right. And what I do is break out of the binary of saying well, you could say, you could say yes he is, or you could say and then go down the David Icke road, or you could say no he isn't, and that's that's kind of crazy. But you could also say as compared to what, right? Because right.
0: <laughs> like a it. lot
1: of people have a lot of ideas of who George W. Bush is. We're talking like millions of people. were are in a very cultish movement around making him president. Yeah. President. Um, And thinking he was going to do all sorts of things like look after their children and um, improve their education and um, make the economy boom and, and protect Americans through going to foreign wars and, and all sorts, and all these things I suggest are like, at least as crazy as thinking he's a shape-shifting reptilian. So that's why I'm drawing up that spectrum there.
0: Right. Right. Because isn't it, I noticed this on the opposite end of the spectrum regarding this chapter is that it really resonated with me again, because I see the same way, not with just with George Bush, but on the polar opposite end in Barack Obama. He's beloved. He's good looking. Mm. People Mm. gravitated toward him. Meanwhile, he's a sociopath. He ended up killing tens of thousands of people, bombed seven Arab countries in less than six years, um, destroyed the union, the car unions in this country, uh, corporatized health care in this country, uh, gave Mm. a blank check really to the NSA and uh, helped construct the Utah data center. Um, allowed for a number of civil liberties to be abused and arrested the most whistleblowers in u.s history yet mm. this man is reviled uh you know adorned by millions of people in the light of all this yeah and so is yeah that that mythology that surrounds is that is that is it more mythology or is it a psychosis or a denial of realism
1: yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm super going into this, but I think that the the state has taken on a religious function. Because when I was young, I used to mm-hmm. uh, there was this image put around that we live in a post Christian culture, right? And I remember someone saying, uh, reading a book, and it was just democracy had become like a new religion, and I was like, that's crazy. Democracy is like true, you know, that's <laughs> not, not a religious thing. Mm-hmm. And later on, I came to see it. I came to see how the state had taken on like the old religious functions where, uh, and. It, you see this in the language in the United States now of like on the January sixth yes. riots uprising, right. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. whatever you want to call it. There was a sense of like a sacred chamber had been violated, not an administrative building. Okay, like the 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 rioters had, had desecrated um, a, a sacred place, and yeah, you saw that massively around the imagery of the bomb. And being a kind of saviour figure after all the the terrible years of Bush, maybe more strongly than uh, with all the presidents, but took on more for and and Trump. Then, like, wow, did he take on some religious significance for people? You know, in in a different kind of direction.
0: Hmm. There are there are many competing agendas within the hierarchical structure of government. For example, the banking institutions, the military-industrial complex, fossil fuel industrialists, but they have a common goal which is affluence power and it's just the manner in which they achieve it which is the which is within debate now would that make sense to what you were trying to relay in the book
1: um i i probably see things that way that there are these different forces pulling on the direction of the government or the state and the direction of travel is the resultant force of all of those. So you might have finance and oil and arms manufacturers, foreign lobbies like Israel and Ukraine currently, all pulling in slightly different directions, with slightly different goals. But in a general sense, they want to go west, not east or east, not west. They've got a you know, they're not pulling in a diametrically opposed direction with some... Uh, contradictions to that sometimes uh, when they are like the Israel lobby and the oil lobby might sometimes be in like real contradiction and um, but a resulting force arises out of that and the ship sails, but in relation to the book, I would just put that as like one paradigm. Okay, one way of looking at things um, amongst like several, because you could also affect like ideology, what role does in one sense, like everyone's trying to enrich themselves through the state, but in another sense, there are people who have deep eye- theological commitments—they're trying to live out through the state too. So there, there is different, and um, which one of those forces predominates?
0: In in chapter eight, you coined the phrase "conspirituality," which you defined the conjunction of a conspiracy and spirituality. Uh, tell us more about the meaning and where you got it from.
1: Yeah, it's it's um it came about, about ten years ago, and I I didn't know this until I started writing the book. I'd heard people use it as kind of in a, in a positive connotation, and people about my age who probably radicalised by 9-11, and then got into a spiritual thing too, or vice versa. Um, so, con-spirituality, um, and then I heard it during the pandemic used as a pejorative term for people involved in spirituality who were corrupted by conspiracism and taken down this dark path. So, it was actually yeah, a paper, um, I'm going to say Charlotte Ward and David Voas, two academics who put the paper together in uh, noticed this phenomenon, and put it together about 10 years ago, they coined the term. Um, So yeah, I was just interested, as I've probably addressed this a bit already, just exploring the the parallels that exist between spirituality and conspiracy theory. But almost like they're a mirror image, right? So they're the opposite of each other, but a mirrored opposite.
0: David Icke was quite an influential entity in your initial endeavors Mm. past and even currently from frenzied belief to questioning self and rationalizing the conspiracy from the narrative. Uh, Your message was clear at the end with Mick West that the truth is somewhere in the middle. What are we looking for, Richard?
1: Hmm. I think we're looking for a way to look, principally. Mm -hmm. I think we haven't resolved that. And we, we think we know the way to look. So then we're talking about what we're looking at and what I want. What to do is take a step back and so well, how are we looking at this because i i had a quote from mick west where he said look the truth isn't in the middle like building seven either was or wasn't brought down by controlled demolition there's no in the middle it's like nice fluffy thing to say but it's not real and i say okay maybe on that level yes but if you step back from the level of individual incidents to the level of people then the truth is in the middle because someone who holds the um like david chandler for example our, our friend um he's a, a big more than what well, more than a believer he's he's convinced from his uh, knowledge of physics that building seven came down let's for argument's sake say he's wrong okay david sandler still from holding that worldview um i would say has a really in-depth knowledge of a lot of the america's geopolitical history okay so compared to somebody who's um then right about building seven i'm just giving a theoretical right uh, but doesn't know that where, where's the truth well it's clearly somewhere in the middle right so on the level of people truth doesn't reside in a particular person it is i would suggest somewhere in the middle and, and with that in mind we can start to have a, a more productive dialogue but even even the wingnut at the end of the spectrum who thinks the world's flat and the wingnut at the other end of the spectrum who thinks that rachel Maddow was worth listening to um all of these people have some level of truth
0: <laughs> right
1: or some well, level of value
0: well some left right at some level of value and uh well Richard what what are you what are you working on now currently?
1: Um relevant to this I'm actually doing a series on David Icke on um mm-hmm. I'm reading it's called reading David Icke because I am reading David Icke I'm reading him from beginning to end I've just on the third episode and I think this is I'm finding psychotherapeutic for me Adam to kind of undercover uncover my own past in terms of like reading his books, not knowing what to make of them, 20 years later, still not knowing what to make of him. So I'm trying to answer the question, I'm trying to understand David Icke really, um, because I'm interested in iconoclasts. And this is an iconoclast that touched my life and my thinking. So how did somebody who was, and I think Americans don't know this, but David Icke was massively famous in the UK, uh, prior to any of his more recent shenanigans with conspiracy uh, as a sports presenter. So how does, how does a goalkeeper become a sports presenter, become an environmentalist? Well, that's not too hard a journey to make. But how does this guy go on tv and start talking about earthquakes and and all the rest and he's got he's on a mission from the spirit realm to to kind of save the world how does this messiah complex come about okay and then how does this guy who's getting these spiritual messages um about humanity and telling us all we're one consciousness and all the rest how does he become a conspiracy theorist okay what 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 shifted there and that's the episode of just dawn and then um i'm going on to look at how the reptiles come into interview and the more outrageous of his positions and my hope uh, certainly not the audience will agree um but if you can see the world through david ike's eyes you can understand maybe that he has a certain psychological uh dispositions and traits certain um traits that might be heightened like he's a really he really goes for it when he does something you dive in when he thinks he's got the answer he goes for it and if you understand the time he was writing was pre-internet and if you understand uh, the kind of information that he was coming across the 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 listener can go oh yeah yeah i see how he got himself there now i wouldn't do it but i can see how at this point he's not like gone bananas he's still like he's a very unusual human being who's done a lot of good and a lot of bad maybe um but he's he's um yeah, I can understand him. He's not a complete mystery why this guy is ranting about reptilians anymore. That's my goal. Don't know if I'll get there at the reptilians. Seems like a tall order, but I've gotten. I've just done the episode explaining how he became a, a conspiracy theorist. And I think that for me, it was, it was really, yeah, I suppose therapeutic is, oh yeah, I can see what he got right. And I can also see where I feel he, he went wrong. So yeah, that's what I'm working on amongst all the things that's, that's relevant to to this.
0: Richard Cox, his book is Contemplating Conspiracy, Excursions into Undiluted Madness, which could, be, which could be found on Amazon. Thank you very much for coming on, Richard. It was a pleasure.
1: Thank you for the interview, Adam. It's, it's yeah, wonderful. Thank you.